0: My name is Grant, I'm one of the pastors here at Restored Church, and I just hope you guys had a good end of the year, hope you had a good Christmas, and you got to eat some good food and spend time with some loved ones, and I hope you got some rest. I know those things are not always like mutually exclusive. Sometimes being with loved ones and getting rest doesn't kind of work together, or eating good food and getting rest is not great. I'm 37 now, and eating good food often means at three in the morning I wake up for a Tums. So I don't know if anyone else has Tums by the bed. Yeah. Okay. John is honest. Not too many other hands raised, but um, yeah. Abigail. Whoa. Okay. It's just name and shame over here. This church is starting well. 2024 is a new year, everyone. well, what I meant to say, rather than like, just calling anyone out, and who knows what'll happen in the rest of the sermon, but uh, happy new year and hope you had a good Christmas and everything. Personally, um, Shell, August, and I went back to South Africa for Christmas, which was really special just to see some family and friends, be back in Durban, uh, see Harbour City. Got to be there for the end of year dinner and preach there on the 17th, which was really special. Um, got to eat some good South African foods. You can Google this, but Biltong, Borevors, and Bunny Chouse had all three all tremendous. And August, on her wish list, was seeing monkeys in the garden, which pretty much happened every day. So that's just a different reality being there, but it was special. And then one more bit of news, we went to the U.S. consulate while we were there and got a fresh visa in our passports. So you're not going to get rid of us too easily. We're around for a little bit longer. So that's some good news too as we start the year. But uh, this is our first Sunday gathering of 2024. And if you've been in church for a while, the first sermon of the year uh, it's always interesting, you know. Um, often you get the New Year's resolution sermon. Who's heard one of those before? Yeah, there we go. Okay, see some hands. This is kind of like as we start the year, we're going to put this godly habit in place to follow Jesus in the year ahead. And I love that stuff. I know some of you don't. That's the way I'm wired. I'm like, let's do that. I'm excited and I'm ambitious, I've got goals for the year, I've got stuff written down always. I know some of you are the same and I know others are just skeptical. You're like, I know I'm not gonna make it through January before I break this thing, why are we doing this today? That's the first type. The second type is I come from more of a Pentecostal and charismatic background. And often what would happen the first sermon of the year would be like New Year, God is wanting to do something new, you know, something fresh, something is coming alive, you know, there'd be this kind of blanket, generic, horoscopy kind of idea for the year ahead. I had such an awkward thing in 2020. I was sharing a a workspace with a bunch of other pastors from other churches, and I walked in and you never make the joke before you ask the question. I just joked and said, 2020, who preached on 2020 vision on Sunday? How lame would that be? And the one guy's like, that was my sermon on Sunday, you know? So that kind of thing. Maybe some of you know that kind of sermon. God is doing a new thing. Or thirdly, it's like we just don't acknowledge that it's a new year. You know, we're just like, turn to John chapter 7. Happy New Year. Let's read. We're going to carry on. I don't know what kind of sermon this is going to be today. It might touch on all three. We'll see how it goes. You can decide afterwards. But I just hope this encourages you. This is something... um, that I I sense God was speaking to us about last year in one of our gatherings in November. I think it's an invitation and an encouragement for us. So um, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 24. But before we start reading that, I love the Christian practice of the examine. And I'm sure this is something some of you guys do. Some of you have told me that you do this. But very simply, what this is, is at the end of the day, the last thing you do before you go to bed is you just spend a few minutes with God reviewing the day. I think you can do this very easily with this framework of the four R's, which are going to come up here. You replay, rejoice, repent, and rest. And I do this a few times a week. Last night I started doing this and I fell asleep because I literally do this in bed, lying down last thing before I go to sleep. But you start at the beginning of the day in the morning and you just replay through the day. What were the key moments? What were the highlights? What were the big things from this day? And you rejoice. You think of the things that you can celebrate and thank God for and practice gratitude for. It could be the smallest thing. It could be just a really great text from someone or an encouragement. It could be an answered prayer. It could be you got to have lunch or coffee with someone that you love and that was special. It could be a good moment at work. It could be you got a raise or you got a promotion or who knows what it could be. But something that you can celebrate with God. And then we repent. There's some things from the day that we're going to bring before God and actually ask him to forgive us for. We're going to ask for his grace for where we didn't trust him. Or we, send a, we, we, di- we did the thing that we knew we shouldn't do in that moment. And then we end this practice by resting. And I love this. We rest in his grace. We rest in his forgiveness. We rest in his love. And we go to bed resolved that tomorrow is a new day to walk with and follow and enjoy him. I do this a few times a week when I remember, when I think about it. But I do intentionally do this at the end of each year. I love beginning to pray for the year that is ahead and just say, God, is there anything you want to say to me, anything you want me to know, anything you're inviting me into, any themes for the year ahead? And I try and write those things down. And then as the year ends, I like to do a bit of a reflection on the year and kind of run through 2023 or 2022 through these four categories and just bring the stuff before God. What happened in the year? What do I want to rejoice in? What do I want to repent of? What do I need to rest in his love and forgiveness and grace for? That might be something you want to do, you know, this January, maybe this week. In some of our GCs, we will be doing this this week. Can't promise it'll happen in yours, but that is the plan for some of them. But today, what we're going to do is an even more simple form of this. Rather than kind of running through these categories in our Sunday gathering, I just want to ask you one question. It's a bit of a diagnostic just to think about where you're at. And that question is this. Where are you at with Jesus as we start 2024? Where are you at with Jesus at the start of this year? So if you've got your Bible open to Luke 24, we're going to read from verse 13. Otherwise, it'll come up on the screen next to me. It's an amazing passage with a lot going on. And just try as we read through this, just see the different experiences the disciples go through in this passage of Scripture. Luke 24, verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. I did the math for you. Seven miles is about a two and a half hour journey. So they're walking for two and a half hours, time to talk and discuss things amongst themselves while they head there. Verse 14, together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. It's really interesting in this passage looking at the different ways that Jesus engages and interacts with his people it's very much like how he engages and interacts with us then they asked them then he asked them what is this dispute that you're having with each other as we're walking and they stopped walking and looked discouraged the one named Cleopas answered him are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days what things he asked them classic Jesus He's saying, everyone knows what's been going on. How do you not know this stuff? But Jesus is kind of baiting them to teach them something. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from my group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Kind of an amazing bunch of things going on in the intro to Luke 24. So he, Jesus, said to them, how foolish you are interesting jesus saying that to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken he's saying you guys know the bible you know what we would call the old testament you know these scriptures and how foolish you are to not remember what they say about what's going on right now wasn't it necessary for the messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory and then beginning with moses and all the prophets working his way through the old testament from genesis to malachi He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening. and Now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him but he disappeared from their sight. So interesting how Jesus engages them. The commentators wonder why it was in that moment that they recognized Jesus then, as he broke the bread. They wonder if it was because of the miracles. They'd seen him break bread and feed 4,000 and 5,000 people. They'd been at the Last Supper when he broke bread and instituted the act of communion, which we'll do in just a bit. They wonder if as he broke the bread, it's like they saw him in a fresh light, or or why in that moment Jesus revealed himself as the bread was broken and then disappeared. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then in verse 32, it says, And they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Weren't our hearts burning within us? Don't you long for your heart to burn for Jesus, to be on fire for God? I see that hand. Verse 33, that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. This seems so wild. The kind of the whole day, they've been on the road, the seven mile journey, two and a half hours. I'm sure they took it slow, talking and engaging with Jesus. And then they realize it's been him all along. As they break the bread, they're like, it's Jesus. He was the one who walked with us and spoke to us. So they head back all the way to Jerusalem, seven miles, two and a half hours. Maybe they went a little bit faster because they wanted to get to the apostles in the early church and say, we've seen him. He's alive. It's true. What the others were saying, it's true. They found the eleven and those who were gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. And then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them in the breaking of bread. And what is insane is then in verse 36, Jesus appears to them again. So they're in Emmaus in this house and Jesus appears, and well, he breaks the bread and then disappears, and then they head all the way back to Jerusalem, and they're in another house talking with other people, and Jesus appears there, and then he starts to speak with them, and he eats some fish with them, and starts to explain a little bit more clearly what has been going on, and to spend time with them, and then he keeps doing this. Again and again, Jesus shows up, and appears, and talks to them. Over 40 days, he shows up and teaches them and spends time with them and explains more about the kingdom of God to his disciples who had just been through a wild situation. See, the context for Luke 24 is this is the Easter weekend. So this walk, this road to Emmaus journey is happening on Easter Sunday. This is the Easter weekend, something that we celebrate every year. And here in Luke 24, we're seeing these people responding to the events of this weekend. And this has been a big weekend. Like what happens on the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this weekend are some of the biggest and most significant moments in the scriptures. So part one, day one is Maundy Thursday. And if you've heard that term before, Maundy means command. And it's referring to Jesus giving this new commandment to his disciples, that they would love one another as he had loved them. So this is a big day. This is a day that kind of starts or ends with the Last Supper, the most famous meal of all time, and then goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Both of these scenes are happening on the Thursday. And at this meal, you've got what we, you would think of as probably like one of the highlight spiritual moments of their lives. There's the, 11, or the twelve of them with Jesus around the table, just intimately with Him, getting to speak to Him and ask questions, and He teaches from chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and then in 17 he prays this beautiful prayer for himself and them and all Christians throughout all time. And then as well as that, he also sets them this example by washing their feet, humbling them, and teaching them about the kind of life and leadership they should have. This chunk of scripture was all one meal time that they got to have, and if you think about some of your highlight spiritual moments with God, this would be it, you know. For the disciples, just the intimacy and experience and revelation that they had as they spent time with Jesus, this was a wild mealtime. If you long for that, if you long for intimacy with God, to hear from God, to know Him, Monday, Thursday is your day. And then Jesus goes from that meal to the Garden of Gethsemane where He had prayed before, and He prays really in a, a tough way, He wrestles with God in prayer because He knows that the cross is coming. And He prays this in Mark 14 verse 36. He says, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Pete Gregg talking about this passage says that what he prays there is, how am I going to get through this? That's the prayer he says that we would pray or how we would relate to Jesus. How am I going to get through this? And Jesus surrenders himself to the will of God in the garden before he surrenders himself to the cross. What's going to come next? So that's just the Thursday. Day two, we've got the Friday, which is the day Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world. We've got this great exchange, God giving himself for us, taking our sin on himself and giving us his righteousness. Our hope, the most powerful, significant moment for Christians is Jesus dies in our place for our sin. we put our trust in. It's such an exciting moment for us, but for the disciples watching this happen in real time. Seeing Jesus die, the shock and trauma and emotion of that must have been so raw and confusing because they'd been walking with this man for three years, so excited about the trajectory of this ministry, and now he's dead and it's over. (laughs) It's like, well, what next? You know, what do we do after this? What is going on? They would have been so confused as they went to bed that Friday night, having just watched such a bloody and hard moment. Enter the Saturday of the Easter weekend, Black Saturday or Holy Saturday as it's known, where Jesus is in the tomb and no one sees him or hears from him or has any experience of him at all. They're just left with their questions and confusion and pain, not knowing what is next. They don't find any answers in this moment. They're just left in silence in the waiting. And then comes day four, Easter Sunday and Luke 24. So they've had this incredible spiritual high of the Thursday night and then a really raw emotional Friday watching Jesus die on the cross. And then a really confusing, lonely Saturday where God has not spoken to them and they felt really isolated from God. And now on Sunday morning, there are these rumors of God. There are these rumors that God is doing a new thing. Come on, cue the Pentecostal new year, you know. This new life coming through that actually God seems to be speaking and appearing and talking to people in these new ways. That's how Luke 24 starts. The female followers of Jesus go to the tomb to see him, and when they get there the stone has been rolled away and the body is gone. There's just the burial clothes left there, and two angels appear to them and say, "He is not dead, he is risen." And they rush back to the apostles to tell them this good news. And the apostles say, what you're saying is nonsense. (laughs) Can you imagine the anticlimax of that? You know, you're so excited. We were so upset and disappointed. But Jesus is alive. What we believed is true. It's all real. And the only one who kind of believes what's going on is Peter. The rest rejected and say, ah, what you're saying is it's rubbish. And Peter runs to the tomb to see. And the tomb is open and the burial clothes are there. And he's amazed, he's excited about what this could mean for the early church and these followers. What do you think you would feel if you were one of the disciples on this weekend? Going through that Thursday high, Friday low, Saturday confusion, Sunday, these rumors and whispers of God on the move. What do you think you would feel? What do you think you'd be asking? What do you think would be going through your mind? Where would you be at if you were one of these disciples? I mentioned it already, but last year I read a book called God on Mutes by Pete Gregg. The subtitle of the book is Engaging the Silence of Unanswered Prayer. It's a really good book, I can recommend that to you. But he looks at four different types of prayer or seasons with God and he uses the Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday of the Easter weekend to kind of frame them. So he says that the Thursday, The question that we ask on that day is how am I gonna get through this? Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, just knowing what is ahead and praying, not my will, but yours be done. The Friday and the crucifixion, the question is why aren't my prayers being answered? As Jesus prays and says to the Father, Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22 in a moment of deep pain. And then the Saturday is where is God when heaven is silent when you don't know what's going on, when you don't know what God is saying, when you don't know how to respond, you don't know what to do. And then the Sunday is when every prayer is answered. And we see this starting to happen, this bubbling up of new life, this bubbling up of answered prayer of God revealing himself and starting to speak and showing what he was doing all along. As we enter 2024, do any of these prayers sound like things that you're praying? As we enter 2024, can you relate to any of that at all? Or can you relate to anything that the disciples were experiencing and going through? Can you see yourself in their situation at all? Like, like, does this resonate with you? Because as I went through Luke 24, there are a lot of different adjectives that, that describe what the disciples were feeling and going through. So I've made a list for you. You can have a look over here. Do any of these adjectives describe you right now? as we start this day, where you're out with Jesus. In verse four, it says they were perplexed. In verse five, terrified. In verse 11 and 41, they were in disbelief, amazed, discouraged, disappointed. In verse 24, Jesus calls them foolish because of like the way they're responding to what's going on. Is that you? Verse 37, they are both startled and terrified. In verse 38, they're troubled and doubting. And then the next few verses, we see almost this change as Jesus is appearing to them and revealing himself to them. They're amazed, they're joyful, they're blessed, and they end in praise. They end full of praise for Jesus and what he's doing. Do any of these adjectives sound like you or describe where you're at right now? Where are you at with Jesus at the start of 2024? Now, I usually don't use alliteration and assonance in a sermon. So today I'm going to make up for lost time, and I've got eight D's to help you think about where you might be with Jesus at the start of this year. Hopefully this is not going to come across cheesy, that's why I sometimes don't do this, but I've got eight D's for us to think through where you might be. Maybe you're more than one, maybe you're a few, maybe you're just one of these. Eight D's to help us think where might I be with Jesus as we start this year. So the first is, are you the doubting disciple? Now, Pretty much all of these you're gonna see in the disciples in Luke 24. At least to some degree, they're experiencing some of this. So are you the doubting disciple like they were, waking up on that Sunday and not knowing what is going on? They had they gone all in on Jesus, and now they're doubting Jesus. They're saying like, we, we believed in this man, we believed in what he was saying, we were following him, we had our hopes set on what he was going to do, and now he's dead and gone, end of story. What am I meant to believe about all of this? And then you can imagine they were doubting themselves, just thinking, well, if I trusted Jesus, I followed Jesus, I gave everything up for this Jesus guy, then what do I have to do? You know, what do I trust about my own thoughts and feelings, you know, and decision-making? Like, like what do I believe about myself? Um, I'm sure they were wondering, what do I believe and what do I do now? You know, I don't know what I think about Jesus. I don't know what I think about myself what do I believe and do now? Are you in the doubting disciple space? What about the disappointed disciple? In Luke 24, verse 20 to 21, this is what the disciples who walk with Jesus say, our chief priests and leaders handed Jesus over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him, but we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. We were hoping He was the one that was about to redeem Israel. They had a hope, they had an expectation, they believed Jesus was going to do something, and now He's gone and it hasn't happened. Their hopes are thrashed. They're disappointed by what's going on. I just want to say this isn't a broken promise. Jesus didn't promise to do something that He didn't do. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that they had an expectation of Jesus. They put their trust in Him doing something, and when it didn't happen, obviously they were disappointed. And it's so easy for us to do the same. We, we believe Jesus is going to do something in our lives. We believe our lives are going to look a certain way. And when that doesn't happen, we feel disappointed. And maybe for you, that's you as we start this year. Maybe you're disappointed going into 2024 because you thought your life would look different by now. Maybe at this age, in this year, in this period, you thought your life would look a certain way and it doesn't. Maybe you thought by now you would own a home or be married, or have kids, or be further along in your career, or doing something that you found meaningful and satisfying. Or maybe you thought by now you would have dot, dot, dot figured out, and you just don't. You're like, surely at this age, I should have this figured out. Or maybe you've experienced certain types of pain and loss, and you're sitting there thinking, I never thought this would be my life. I never thought I would go through this. I never thought this would be my story. It's a very hard thing to admit when you're disappointed with God. Last year, I had to admit that. Just say, God, I'm disappointed about some of the things of the last few years. I feel disappointed in what's happened. You know, I expected things to look a certain way, and they haven't. It's also really hard to go to God with disappointments about things that have happened to you that are outside of your control. Things that you couldn't control, that you couldn't change, but have just happened that are impacting you significantly. Maybe you're a disappointed disciple. Or maybe similarly, this is a very similar category, maybe you're a discouraged disciple. Maybe it's less that you feel disappointed at what's happened and more just discouraged by what has happened. Because you had, again, a thought about what your life would look like now. You thought you would be further along the line in your faith by now. You thought at this age, at this period, you would have kind of Christianity figured out, faith figured out. Or you thought by now that you would look a lot more like Jesus. Or you thought you would overcome some of the struggles and sins of your past. You thought you'd be far further down the line. Or maybe you thought you would have done something for God by now, which hasn't happened, or whatever it is, you find yourself just discouraged. Like the energy has kind of been sucked out of you because this thing hasn't happened, you're not where you thought you would be. Or maybe you're a disorientated disciple. This is definitely Jesus' followers in Luke chapter 24. They don't know what's up and what's down. They don't know what's going on at all. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. They're completely disoriented by the last couple of days. And maybe you feel the same. I remember um, a friend of mine, his name was also Grant. He was a pastor and a pilot. He was in his 50s at the time that we had this chat. But he took me up in his plane one day, which was a really cool thing. I was telling Stephen Royce about this the other day. Um, and he even let me fly for like, two minutes before I got too off track. And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll rein it in. I'll kind of sort out what you've been doing. But um, he took me flying and he spoke to me about just these like uh, similarities between being a pilot and, and the life of faith. And he spoke about some of the things that they drilled into him when he was learning to fly. And they spoke to him about trusting their instruments when you weren't sure what was going on. And I remember Grant saying, like, sometimes just with the weather conditions and the stress and what's going on, actually, you can't trust yourself. You have to trust the instruments. Because otherwise, your feelings, your fear, your uncertainty could cause you to do something really destructive or really damaging or really dangerous. And he was saying it's the same for us as we walk with God, is sometimes we are disorientated and we don't know what is going on and we don't know what we should do. And in those moments, we can't let our fear or our feelings drive us. We have to turn to the instruments. We have to look to God's word. We have to look to his community. We have to look to the means of grace that he's given us to help us stay on track. Because actually, the decisions we might want to make in those moments are not going to help us. They're not going to lead us in the right direction. They're not going to be good for us as we fly or as we live. Maybe you're a deconstructing disciple. And you find yourself after years in church tearing down some of the things that you've believed for a long time. And there can be a really healthy form of that where we tear down cultural things which are just not true, or don't line up with the scriptures, or things that we've been taught or experienced which are just not lined up with the way of Jesus. But when we are tearing down some of the orthodox truths of the scriptures, the kind of undeniable black and white things that we should hold tight to, we're in a very dangerous space. I want to encourage you to ask questions and seek the scriptures for what is true we can be in quite a dangerous space as a disciple if we're tearing down lots of different parts of our faith. What about a distracted disciple? I think probably a lot of us are in this space today. Definitely feel that for myself. I love uh, what Ruth shared at the beginning of worship today, looking out of the window and seeing the roots coming out of the ground, looking for life and looking for something outside of the ground, which is not where it should be looking. And so many of us are looking for things in places outside of Jesus, not finding what we're most looking for. We talked about this a bunch last year, but one of the most striking things for me was Tom Logue here on a Sunday and also at the retreat saying, do you know how much your attention is worth? Because big corporations do. Do you guys remember that? He told us that by 2025, advertisers will be spending 4.7 trillion dollars a year globally to get our attention, because they know how valuable our attention is. For many of us, we we desire to follow Jesus, but we're pulled in all of these different directions, and we find ourselves thinking about all these different things, and we're in a distracted space. Or maybe you're a dutiful disciple. As I was praying for today, this is the one that kind of popped for me. I, I think a lot of us in this room are in this category. The dutiful disciple is someone who's doing the right thing. They're trying to follow Jesus. They're trying to do the things he calls them to. Here on a Sunday, we're serving, we're giving, we're we're listening to sermons and trying to put it in place in our life. We're reading the Bible for ourselves and trying to obey the teachings of the scriptures and trying to think through what they mean and how we should respond. You're faithful in prayer. You're faithful in the church. Your biggest desire in life is to please God and honor him in all that you do. You're dutiful, but in doing all of these things, you're just not finding joy, and you feel tired. Maybe that's you today. So now we're talking about this this walk of the disciples in Luke 24, and it's two and a half hours, seven miles of just plodding, going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And maybe you feel like you've been plodding with Jesus for a long time, just walking, going through the motions, doing the right thing but you haven't found the joy that they find at the other end. Their heart's burning, and they race back to tell everyone what they've seen. And the last category would be the delighted disciple. In Luke 24, verse 32, they have this moment of realizing it was Jesus all along. And they say, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Weren't our hearts burning within us? William Barclay, in his translation of this passage, says, weren't our hearts strangely warmed as we spent this time with Jesus? And he's actually pointing back, it's an allusion to John Wesley's conversion story. If you don't know John Wesley, he was one of the founders of Methodism. And he had a really interesting story where he kind of tried to do the right thing for a long time. Like even at school, he started this thing called a holiness club. And he invited all of his, sounds fun, right? Like sign up for my holiness club. He invited all of his friends, come, let's do this. Let's try and do the right things and practice all of these Christian practices. And he started to preach. And he even went from England to America to preach the gospel and get people saved before he was a Christian. And he had this experience on a boat where he was filled with fear, thinking that the ship was going to go down. And some Moravian Christians showed him such an incredible example of peace and faith and confidence in the midst of potential death that he said, you've got something I don't have. And when he got back to England, he prayed and said, Lord, help my unbelief. And on May the 24th, 1738, he reluctantly went to a church meeting. This was like a midweek evening meeting where they were reading from Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. I don't see that really selling in this community. Come and join us Wednesday night, we're at Jefferson. We're gonna be reading through Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. Everyone's like, yeah, sign me up, You know, like taking photos of the QR code. I'll be there Wednesday night. But that's what he went to reluctantly. And while this guy was reading through this commentary, he says, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I'm sure there's some of us in this room who remember when we started to follow Jesus, there was like this excitement in us. There was this burning, this uh, energy, this unbelief, like we couldn't believe. This message was just too good to be true. Jesus seemed too good to be true, and there was this fire burning inside of us. But over time, maybe that's whittled away or gotten a bit dampened or something. In fact, um, probably for many of us, God has had to even like whittle us off of our trust in a feeling or an experience so that we would trust in the person of Jesus, not just in the experience of the joy and excitement of beginning to follow him. So the title of the sermon today is Hearts on Fire. And I love the like the picture of that, these disciples realizing something has happened to me in this walk with Jesus. Something is going on inside of me. I'm different after that walk. I'm different after being with Jesus. I'm different after hearing him speak. I'm different after he opened up the scriptures. And it's like there's this fresh awe and worship and wonder and excitement and love and passion for him and and, and wanting to know him and serve him, which burns inside of us. There was something about Jesus and his teaching that in that moment set a fire inside of them and it filled them with delight. And I'm not sure if this is you. I hope this is you, that you're a delighting disciple today. I don't think that's where I'm at right now. Honestly, I think the last few years for me have been as a dutiful disciple. I wanted to follow Jesus. I'm plotting. I'm doing the right things. I'm serving him. I want to because I know he's good. But I desire to be in this space. I've definitely experienced probably all of those. But I desire to be in this space. And I would love it if right now I could pray a powerful prayer, wave a wand over this community and all of us left here and we went, as Grant spoke, did not our hearts burn within us? You know, Did Jesus not meet me in that moment? And we leave here full of all of those feelings, that excitement, that awe, that wonder. We're like, woo, 2024 is the year of Jesus. I'm all about it. At the beginning of A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, which is a book that really impacted me years ago, there's a verse which kind of summarizes the big idea of the book. It's Hosea 6 verse 3. It says, Let's strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. It's a verse about His consistency. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring showers that water the land. So it's a, a verse about pursuing God, about His consistency, and about His refreshing. And I'm sure a lot of us going into 2024 are saying, I would love the refreshing of the Lord. That that rain, that spring shower, I want that for my soul. I want to feel close to God in the way that this verse describes. Let's strive to know the Lord. The, The word for strive there could be translated as follow or pursue or hound or chase or even hunt. There's like this passionate, intentional, focused, pursuit of God that's going on in Hosea 6 verse 3. A pursuit to know Him and be with Him and enjoy Him that the verse is calling us to. And I would love that to be the big idea of the sermon. So, 2024, we are going to pursue Jesus. Who's in? And hopefully everyone would erupt. John, I see two hands. We're in. Who's going to pursue? Let's hunt. Let's hound. Let's chase. Let's follow. Let's do the Hosea 6 verse 3 thing. And I think that would be a really noble goal for 2024. I think if we were a church who said, that's what we're going to do, that would be a beautiful thing, and it would be really fruitful. But I love this so much. That's not what happens in Luke 24 at all. You know, Jesus doesn't appear to them and say, Hosea 6 verse 3, guys. Come on, strive, seek, follow, pursue, chase, hunt, hound for me. No, Jesus comes after them. It's the most incredible thing when they are disappointed, discouraged, down downcast, all the Ds, eight Ds plus, when they're in that place, Jesus doesn't say, hey, you should pursue me. No, he pursues them. He comes alongside them. He walks with them. He speaks to them, even though a lot of the time they don't realize it's happening. He opens their eyes to see what is true. He sets their hearts on fire as they are are with him. So I still think it's good advice to pursue Jesus in that way. 2024. I think that would be a good thing for us to do. But what I love about Luke 24 and what is such good news for us as disciples is that when we're in those first six D phases, even the seventh, the dutiful phase, that even when we don't feel Jesus's presence, he is with us. He's walking along with us. Even when we don't realize that it's him that's speaking to us, like they didn't on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is speaking because we are his sheep and the shepherd hear his voice, he is speaking to us. We're hearing his words, even if we don't realize it's Jesus that is speaking. And that he comes near to us and walks with us and journeys with us, even in the midst of a lot of confusion and uncertainty about the future and doubts and discouragement and disappointment with God. Jesus comes near. And William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage, he, shows, he says that Luke 24 shows us Jesus's ability to come near to us and make sense of things. Maybe some of you right now have got like questions where you're saying, I don't know what's going on. Jesus wants to come near and make sense of that. And that might not be in a moment, that might take time. They had seven mile journey plus, then Jesus was with them over 40 days. It was a journey for them to understand But Jesus came near to help them make sense of what they were going through and experiencing. These disciples, their hopes and dreams were shattered. Like we we read earlier, they were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Their hopes are dead. Their expectations of the future are dead. They're discouraged. They've had to bury all of those things. But Jesus, even in the midst of those feelings, is coming to help them make sense of what is going on. And he's causing their hearts to burn with a fresh love and a fresh awe, and a fresh wonder, and a fresh joy, and a fresh excitement about him. So I don't know where you are today, which of those D's you would say describes you. And again, I wish I could wave that wand. But over this year, we are hoping to look a lot at the life of Jesus, and go through the Gospels a lot, and look at some of the ways Jesus encountered people. Starting next week, we're going to be in a series through Mark 1, uh, probably called A Day in the Life, where we just look at Jesus, the person of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the way he interacts with people, just what we can look at looking at his life and the way he engages and teaches and all that he does. And as we journey with him throughout this year, I do believe that our hearts will be warmed. I do believe that actually there will be a fire that will grow inside of us. So I want to pray that for us now, but I wanted to give us five minutes just to sit in these two things. I want to give you five minutes just to prayerfully uh, think through these. Where are you with Jesus as we start 2024? And what does the Spirit want you to hear or know this morning? You can close your eyes, you can journal, you can pray.